I'm going to talk about a very fundamental change that is going on in the very fabric of the modern economy. And to talk about that, I'm going to go back to the beginning. Memories that last a lifetime. That's a tall order, isn't it? To experience something so special, you'll remember it the rest of your life. Now, I'm not talking about the big events. Getting married, the birth of a child, milestone birthdays, or even getting promoted. I'm talking about the everyday events, but the ones you just seem to connect with. That concert you can never forget. The place you went where you left with your eyes shining, your heart beating, a big smile you couldn't wait to share and talk about it. Helped to find who you are, made you more curious, made you want to find that again. But before COVID, the experienced economy was growing twice as fast as the materialistic. We were less interested in acquiring stuff and much more interested in spending our money doing things. Tourism alone is 10% of the world's economy. Retail and stores and all these people that had these incredible physical locations to invite you in. And then when you factor in technology like Instagram and social media that allowed you to post your life at the speed of life, that only wired us to to want to be more and see more and do more than ever before. What that means is that it's time to move to a new level of economic value. Time to go beyond the goods and the services. What happens when you customize a service? What happens when you design a service that is so appropriate for a particular person? That's exactly what they need at this moment in time. Then you can't help but make them go wow. You can't help but turn into a memorable event. You can't help but turn it into an experience. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. And this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. But I guess the essential question is COVID killed the experience economy. Because almost overnight, it's moved from physicality, going to school, going to shop, going to work, to going online. What happens when we return to some form of normality? Well, I think there's incredible pent-up desire to get out and to renew our human connections and to sit in a patio and have a cold beer. Many of us can't wait to even get back to work and have that interaction with other people, to escape our house and to go somewhere else. But if you're in that experienced economy and have a physical location that requires people to come to you, you have to realize that for the past year, year and a half, the consumer's been conditioned to do a lot of this online. The world is within arm's reach of desire. Amazon has become the world's biggest vending machine. So you have to find a way to up your experience game to give people a reason to come back. Not just once because they have pent up demand, but time and time again. And I'm not just talking about retail or restaurants or tourist attraction, even universities where students are going to say, I can go online and get that education or spend much more going to school experiences are going to become your tiebreaker. And if you're in a career going forward, I'd also argue that the experience you create as a human being, the heart that you put in your task is going to become increasingly important as you compete against machines. So experiences matter to each and to all of us. Today on Chatter That Matters, you'll be listening to the leading authority on the experience economy anywhere in the world. Joe Pine co-authored the Experience Economy book with James Gilmore. And it's considered one of the top 100 business books of all time. I personally consider it among the top five. And I've read dozens, if not hundreds of business books in my life. 
what Pine and Gilmore did 20 years ago when they first released the book, by the way, it's just been re-released with a lot of new content, is that they accurately predicted this renaissance of consumers moving from acquiring stuff to doing things. They also talked about what creates great experiences. To give you a sense of who you're listening to, Joe Pine was one of the speakers at the first TED Talk. He's an acclaimed author, advises corporations around the world. He's taught at Penn State, Duke, University of Minnesota, UCLA. Today, he's a lecturer at Columbia University's master program. And today on Chatter That Matters, Joe's going to talk about why the experience economy matters to you as a participant, as a career, as an entrepreneur, and someone who wants to be part of a sector that puts smiles on people's faces, that creates deeper connections, and as I started off this podcast, creates memories that last a lifetime. Joe Pine, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Thanks a lot, Tony. I appreciate being here. We didn't invent the experience economy. We simply discovered what was going on, what people and companies were doing, and then you know put a name, a label to it, and then and then, yes, hopefully influenced uh, many others to join in and, and realize how they can create more economic value through experiences than through goods and services. Joe, fair enough and a fair point. But let's go back in time. Where did you first get that insight about this major transformation in our consumer-driven economy from wanting to acquire stuff bigger and better to actually wanting to do more things? Well, it, it actually came from my um, uh, talking about my first book, Mass Customization about how you give everybody exactly what they want, but at a price they're willing to, to, to pay. And I often made the point that mass customizing a good automatically turns it into a service. You know, because you're working with an individual, you're helping them design what they want, then you make it, but then you deliver it to them individually. And I was given an executive education session once at the IBM Advanced Business in- Institute. And uh, somebody in the back of the room, sort of a smart aleck, says, well, you talk about uh, service companies that mass customize as well. What does it turn a service into? And I shot back that mass customization automatically turns a service into an experience. And I went, whoa, wait a second. That sounds good. <laughs> you know, hold on a sec. I got to write that down. I mean, really, it just came out of my mouth like that. And so I then uh, looked into it further and, and realized that it was true. If you design a service that's so appropriate for this particular person, exactly the service that they need at this moment in time, you can't help but make them go, wow, and turn it into a memorable event. And that meant that, that experiences were, in fact, a distinct economic offering. And that meant that you'd have an economy based off of experiences and one that would would uh, grow over time, but that yet you could already see going on. Right? Once you had this lens, you couldn't help but see how much was being worked on with experiences, how many experiences were out there that we could partake on, and how, how valuable, how important they were to us as individual human beings. The first time I read about the experience economy was an article you penned in a Harvard Business Review. And in it, you described the birthday cake, how moms used to make it from scratch to Betty Crocker, all the way to theme parties as a demonstration of this economic progression. Can you share more of that thinking with my listeners? Yeah, it was it was it was really fun to begin a Harvard Business Review article, you know, with the statement that the history of economic progress can be found in a birthday cake. And because uh, you think about it, when um, when we were growing up, the, the core of the birthday party was that birthday cake. And, and when I was growing up, my my uh, mom would bake that cake and she'd bake it from what she'd bake it from scratch which means that she got out the commodities, the flour, the milk, the eggs, the sugar, the, actually I have no idea what goes into a birthday cake. I've never made one, <laughs> but, but she got out all this stuff and she baked a cake for me. And, and, and you look it up and how much that stuff costs. It was like, tw- you know, 20 or 30 cents worth of stuff. 
But along came manufacturers like uh, Betty Crocker and Duncan Hines, who took that same stuff, uh, packaged it, mixed it together, put it on a grocery store shelf. And, and now you could buy cake mix or canned frosting for two or three dollars a piece. You know, it's an order of magnitude more money than the commodities. Uh, but then as uh, moms everywhere became time starved, they didn't always have time to bake the cake anymore. Uh, so they call up the corner grocery store or a bakery and ask them to perform the service of actually baking it uh, for, uh, for their, their, for their kids. And that service would cost 10, 15, 20, maybe $30. So you got another order of magnitude more value for the service over the goods and for the goods over the commodities. Well, well, then what happened, of course, and, and this was in the late 90s when we first started talking about this, is that, you know, moms and parents everywhere became uh, more and more time starved. Not only didn't they have time to bake the cake, they didn't always have time to throw the party. So they outsourced it. You know, they go to uh, Chuck E. Cheese's or a McDonald's Playland or a museum or American Girl Place, a Build-A-Bear, all of these different places to, to, to and ask the company to stage the birthday party experience for them. And that would often cost 100, 150, sometimes 200 or more dollars, another order of magnitude more value for the birthday party experience that still at its core was a birthday cake that had only 20, 30 cents worth of stuff in it, right? That's the history of economic progress. Coming up, Joe shares a story about how Walt Disney used to gauge how happy his guests were in a very Walt Disney way. First of all, you have to understand that there is no such thing as an inauthentic experience. Why? Because the experience happens inside of us. It's our reaction to the events that are staged in front of us. So as long as we are in any sense authentic human beings, then every experience we have is authentic. And there's no such thing as 100% natural experience. Even if you go for a walk in the proverbial woods, there is a company that manufactured the car that delivered you to the edge of the woods. There's a company that manufactured the shoes that you have to protect yourself from the ground of the woods. There's a company that provides a cell phone service you have in case you get lost in the woods. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Welcome back. I'm chatting with Joe Pine, who co-authored The Experience Economy, one of the top business books of all time. Joe, did you ever imagine that what you wrote back then would become the driving force in our consumer-driven economy? Big, it's huge, it's, it's everywhere. You know, you can't even keep track of all of the experiences that are, that are happening out there. Uh, it's true that experiences basically, and, and particularly if you include transformations, became the predominant economic offering. That, that uh, you know, uh, commodities basically employ, how many you know, people uh, work on farms in the US, Canada, maybe a little more percentage-wise, but it's, but it's less than 2% of the people work on farms. It's less than 8% of the people that work in factories, right? All the rest are in services, experiences, and transformations. And increasingly, that has moved over as well uh, to, um, you know, you look at the growth of bars and restaurants as, as one sector of the experience economy. You look at the growth of tourism as another sector of entertainment, of streaming services, right? All of these are... Um, uh, parts and uh, part and parcel of the experience economy, and it's bigger than the service economy now. You've just released the book with all new content, and you talk about the four pillars or quadrants of the experience economy education, aesthetics, entertainment, and escapism. Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, it's, it's what's, you know, it's the first framework outside of this progression of economic values we talk about that we talk about in the book because it's, it's so important to understand that. And one is to answer the question that people often accused us of, 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 of it's all about entertainment. You know, there's retail tainment and shopper tainment and edutainment, all these different things. So right up front, we put no entertainment is in fact one of four realms, right? You can have 
entertainment experiences uh, of, of that realm. You can have experiences that are at part of the educational realm, part of the escapist realm, and then part of the aesthetic realm. And each of these are very different. And they're, I mean, they're always present to any, to at least a small degree in any experience. But, um, but they're very different from each other. Uh, when, when, you know, you think about the entertainment industry, huge sector of the experience economy, but tourism, number one, uh, um, uh, industry in the entire world if, uh, uh, is, is tourism and employs uh, about 10% of the world's population. But then you have what you think of the rise of coffee shops, right? That's the aesthetic experience as well as, um, education being, uh, being a huge part of, of, of how we live our lives too. So one of the things we discovered is that the most robust experiences are those that in fact hit the sweet spot in the middle that have aspects of all four realms of experience that are, that are serially and ideally simultaneously entertaining and educational, escapist and aesthetic all at the same time. So what happens when the experience economy gets stale? I mean, I've been to a theme restaurant. First time you're there, wow. The second time, that's eh, okay. And the third time, it's like, it's honestly quite boring. How do you keep upping the game? Well, yeah, from, from the very beginning, you know, one, one of the things that, that I'm keen on is always asking what's next. And from the very beginning, I always ask, okay, what's next? What's after this? And so I realized, well, experiences can be commoditized as well. You know, the second time you have an experience doesn't tend to be as good as first. The third time, not as good as that. And when customers say, been there, done that, then you've got a commoditized experience. And then using the same heuristic that customization, as I talked about earlier, is the antidote to commoditization. You know, commoditization is like the law of gravity. If you do nothing else, you'll be commoditized over time. But customization lifts you up because you're working with each individual person. And, uh, and, and so what happens when you customize an experience, when you design an experience that's so appropriate for this particular person, exactly what the, the experience they need at this moment in time? Well, then you can't help but, but turn to what we often call a life transforming experience an experience that changes us in some way. And that we call a transformation. So a transformation is the fifth and final economic offering in this progression of economic value using experiences as the raw material to guide people to change, to help them achieve their aspirations. Uh, and, and that means, you know, healthcare is about uh, transformations, uh, fitness centers, uh, management, consulting, uh, higher education, all, uh, all co coaching of all stripes is all about transformation. And you can imagine people are uh, companies with offerings that say, you know, give your birthday parties with me every year and I'll, I'll teach your, your child to be more hospitable, let's say, or I'll teach your child. Well, we, heck, we can even teach math over these things. We've got fun ways of being able to do that, uh, over a series of, uh, of experiences. So that's possible even with a birthday party example. How do you dial up different elements of the experience? Uh, depending on what you determine that people want. And, and I love too that you identified that a parent may want a different type of experience than, uh, than their kids may want. You, know, you go to a theme park and you're, you're looking for different things. Although, although parents are often looking through the eyes of their children and want to see them enjoy themselves. But still, you know, like there, there's so many birthday party experiences, for example, where kids are sitting around. I mean, excuse me, their parents are sitting around like at a Chuck E. Cheese with really not much to do, right? They don't want to eat the pizza, <laughs> you know, that's the, the sitting there, that piece of cardboard in front of them. And they, uh, they often, you know, just sort of like talking to each other, but we need to design places that have uh, the ability to engage everybody in the family and, and dialing up and down the different realms of experiences is a, is a, is a way, you know, is a great way to, to customize it. What role has social media played? Instagram and Facebook and TikTok? In terms of wanting to post my life at the speed of life, 
How much does that driven demand so that I can show my friends I'm the most interesting person in the world? There's certainly been a large shift in that direction, right? That's absolutely right, Tony, that, that increasingly people want to see and be seen. I mean, we're all social beings, right, as humans. And so being around people is a huge thing. That's one of the things that, that COVID did to us over the last year plus is, is take away a lot of those social experiences that we could have. Um, but, um, but in many times there, there are experiences that simply exist to, to take your picture in and then post it on social media. You know, like the museum of ice cream is probably the most famous example of that. There's also Rose mansion and, uh, and others like it where, where people pay this huge admission fee to, to, um, again, take pictures of themselves in all these different vignettes. Um, and so there is a sector, but it's still, it's not the primary uh, sector. I don't think of what's going on within the experience economy. Although one of the huge things that's happened too is we, we originally talked about in 1999 about all the memorabilia that people would buy, right? That's a lot of goods are bought as memorabilia for the experiences that we have. Uh, in the 2020 re-release of the experience economy with the, with the, um, title, uh, subtitle of competing for customer time, attention, money. We had to add into our principles, but you can't forget media, that people want to uh, memorialize things in the media that they do by posting on Facebook, by showing pictures on Instagram and, and so on and so forth. This is not Santa's workshop. It's just one section of a creative world where new attractions for Disneyland are conceived. Now, a great deal of time, sweat, and a few tears were expended on all this. But there's a lot of satisfaction in developing ideas into realities which become a part of Disneyland. In your book, you talk about how Walt Disney used to measure guest satisfaction in an interesting way. And it wasn't very scientific, was it? Yeah, it, 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 it's, it's, I, I talk about this when people ask about measuring experiences. Because the, the, the story goes that how Walt Disney measured the success of Disneyland uh, and what they're doing every day was at the end of the day, he would go to the gates and walk backwards into the park while everybody else was leaving. And he'd measure based on the number of smiles that he saw in people's faces. <laughs> and, and that's, that is the sort of measure we need to do is what at the end of that experience, are people smiling? Are they enjoying themselves? Or there may be some experiences like horror experiences where smile isn't exactly the sort of thing you're looking for. Uh, even escape rooms, it may be more of relief that you're looking for that you escaped out of there. Um, but it is that emotional connection that you're creating. And, and we need to find ways to be able to measure how engaged people are in the experience, because that's really a key, is the level of engagement they have determines the, the, um, the, the, the length of the memory that they keep and, and, and that, you know, which is really the residue of the experience. Coming up next, I asked Joe what happened to the experience economy when COVID locked us in. And what does he think will happen when we return to normality? It's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters, presented by RBC. Most of us have a credit card that rewards us with points. But how many have a credit card that rewards you with experiences that money can't buy? Check out the RBC Avion Collection. Curated travel inspiration, exclusive values, insider tips, and unique experiences. Find out more at rbcrewards.com forward slash Avion Collection. Memories that reward a lifetime matter to RBC. Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman continues. 
Welcome back to Chatter That Matters. It's Tony Chapman chatting with Joe Pine, who co-authored The Experience Economy, one of the top business books of all time. I personally consider it among the top five. You know, the, one of the things about experiences is not just doing them, it's the planning, the anticipation, the buildup. Well, COVID took all of that away. Move that face-to-face and physicality and all sensory and is shoving us in front of a screen. How did the experience economy transform during COVID? And what do you expect to happen when we come out of it? We may need to think about how we design specifically to, to draw people out, right? You, you, to, to, to let them realize, okay, it's okay again to be around people that, that, you know, once we're vaccinated and all that. Um, and, uh, and, and that may require a different set of design on the other, on the other hand, recognize there is huge pent up demand <laughs> that, that people want to have these experiences. We're again, social beings. We want to be around other people. We want all this. We crave them over all of the goods and services that we've had to have over the past, um, uh, year. And so, so in that sense, it may be even be easier for many people, you know, when any, uh, with, with the one exception of movies, when any physical experience opens up, um, people swarm to be able to take into whatever level of capacity, you know, the, the, um, um, baseball parks open up to, to 20%. And guess what? 20% of the people come, you, uh, theme parks open up to 25%. Guess what? They're filled to 25%. And baseball parks are opening up now to 33%. And they're going to get filled again because there's, per, you know, tremendous pent up capacity for those experiences. And one thing you want to do is, or don't want to do is disappoint them. Right. So you want to be ready in day one to be able to give them the experience that they value. Joe, if a company's putting all this money in experiences and doing more and being more and creating more, how do they know they're getting a payback? Exactly. You know, so many people, so many companies just have this old mindset that they think that we're just a, you know, producer of X or we or we're a provider of Y in terms of services. And it's really hard for them to gain an experience mindset. And, it, and it's true with both experiences and transformations here. You know, here's a key distinction is that they happen inside of people, whereas commodities, goods, services, they exist outside of people. So the measurements are totally different, right? You can measure the quality of your good by just looking at the good and not caring about the customer. Uh, in those terms, you can measure the, the service. Did we do the things that we said we were do, right? That's a high quality service. But when it comes to experience, it's like, well, uh, the, the experience exists inside of us in reaction to the events that are staged in front of us. And guess what? You, my experience depends on my mood. It depends on other experiences I've had in the past that you don't even know about. Maybe some you do. It depends on how I is primed for the experience, right? With bad priming, good priming, no priming can really affect what you're doing uh, and, and how I react to it. And with transformations, it's about it's changing people from the inside out. And and what they're really looking for is that is they want to achieve their aspirations, whatever they might be. And so they're looking at outcomes. And, and, and that's what they're looking for as an outcome. And so one of the things we need to do is to and it, and it both both in order to get to the right place and also to to cement that place is what business we're in is we need to charge differently. You know, one of the things I, I love saying is that as a company, you are what you charge for. And if you charge for undifferentiated stuff, you're in the commodities business. If you charge for tangible things, you're in the goods business. If you charge for the activities you, you perform, you're in the services business. But experiences, you have to charge for time. 
an admission fee, a membership fee, or some other way of charging for time, because that's what people value, right? The time well spent. They value that time that they spend in this experience that you have staged for them. And with transformations, it comes down to outcomes, that they achieve the outcomes that they want. And that's what you need to charge for. Uh, and that, and with transformations, it's, it's not just time well spent, it's time well invested. What about retail? You know, we're conditioning consumers to treat their phone like a vending machine and almost all rivers point to Amazon. What can retailers do to restage so that consumers say, hey, it's worth getting off my couch and going and shopping Main Street? Well, the first thing I would say to any small business and understand that a basic principle of the experience economy is that work is theater. Right. Work is theater. It's not a metaphor. I don't mean work as theater. I literally mean that work is theater with that whenever you and your workers are in front of customers, the guests of the experience, the audience, you're on stage and you need to act in a way that engages that, that audience because, because theater doesn't require any capital equipment. And you, you could do this with adding zero cost base. I mean, you can spend money if you want, but you can do it with zero cost. You just direct your workers to act. You give them roles to play. You help them characterize those roles and perform them on your business stage. And that's the number one thing that I would look at uh, as a small business, again, because it, it effectively has no cost, but it but has huge dividends. How about individuals? What advice can you give to individuals and how they can create and bake experiences and what they do so they're more valued? within their corporate culture. Right. And 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 if you're commoditized, then guess what? The company's going to want to automate as much as possible and get rid of as many people as possible. It's the only way you can make money uh, as a, a commodity. So you do have to make yourself valuable, right, as an as an employee and as you're working out. And and one of the things is is right back to what I just said about theater is if you understand if you're a natural actor or you learn how to do acting, um, then, then people will notice how different you are with them as well as with clients and with customers and so forth that can carve out a space for you to, to, uh, create value. I think it's important to keep up on what's going on with technology. Um, but recognize that technology is always a tool and we need people who can design in ways that create great experiences that can use those tools and orchestrate them together. In ways that, um, that will in fact engage people. Uh, and if you've got that, uh, you know, that, that experience design skill that I think that you, um, um, you know, will always be a place for you. You also talk about having this role in your company as a chief experience officer. Tell me a little bit more about what that individual would do. Yeah. I mean, a chief experience officer is ideally the person who's got, you know, experience stamped on their forehead that uh, everybody understands is responsible for the experiences. And, and if you're a company like Disney where, where experience is in your blood, then you don't need a chief experience officer. The CEO is the chief experience officer, and everybody understands about experience. But it's a great way of making that shift, of going from you know, a service company, a service provider, to an experienced stager is by putting in place uh, someone who really understands it and can lead the organization there. And so, yeah, I've got a framework that I won't go into the details of the, of the two by two matrix, uh, that, that, uh, it's based on, but basically it says that, that, that a chief experience officer, a CXO needs, first of all, to be a catalyst, to catalyze what is already going on inside of the company and to, to make things happen, to start fires of people who, um, uh, who then can recognize, hey, we're doing something different. We, and, and, and these are the ways that will lead us to success. They need to be the experienced designer that I just talked about and taking, 
um, uh, what the company can do and its and and its capabilities and bring them out to create new offerings for customers. Uh, they need to be an orchestrator of all of those internal capabilities and bring things together that people uh, that are going on in ways that create new economic value for customers. And then they need to be a champion. They need to be a champion for customers. That gets back to that customer centricity that we talked about. And when you're staging experiences, your customers really are guests. It's a great way to think about it as your guests and therefore your hosts. So, so how do you champion those guests within the company? How do you get people to turn their eyes away from the old product centric ways of doing it? Like you talked about earlier, Tony, and put your eyes out towards that, those individual living, breathing customers that you have, as well as champion what the company can do outwards towards those individuals. And then, and then lastly is, well, sorry, lastly is, is guide. Right. The fifth one is guide. And that gets back to the transformation that we talked about. You guide transformations and you need a CXO. We need to transform into becoming a premier experience stager. And they need to bring along the entire organization. They need to design the set of experiences that the organization needs to have in order to change and meet that aspiration of becoming an experience stager. Joe, you also talk about the value of time. Tell us a little bit more about your findings and why that could be the metric where people can determine, is that experience something my consumer values and can still create value for my bottom line? I think when it comes to actual experiences that, that yes, there's so much pent up demand that it's not going to be a big deal. And, and most experience stagers are good at handling those and, and, and turning even wait time into an experience. You know, Disney's wonderful at that at their theme parks, for example, and others have learned from that. And but when it comes to to the services that we look for outside or the goods buying in retail stores, right there, you know, the term I use is time well saved. What we're looking for is time well saved. And, and, and as you say, we have learned that we can treat our phone as a vending machine and get that time well saved, like with almost immediate boom, we're done. And if all you do and, and retail probably and, and restaurants to a lesser degree are probably the ones that really got to worry about this. If all you do is provide merchandising and people um, coming in and buying what you have on the shelf, then, yeah, if you are not just like, boom, and don't have that inventory, then they are going to be very disappointed. They're going to say, well, I can just pull out my phone and get it now. You know, I was doing you a favor by coming in, <laughs> you know, it seems like. Um, uh, and, and so they're the ones that have to worry about that because they're competing now with all the, the different ways that we can get goods and services done on demand at greatest possible convenience. In fact, one of the things that's going on, Tony, is that really a bifurcation of the marketplace that um, sometimes we want things at the greatest possible uh, convenience and the lowest possible price, right? That's, that's time well saved. And other times we want to spend our time. We want to linger. We want to lounge. We want to kick the tire, so to speak. And that's where we value that time well spent. You've got to figure out how you're going to serve most of those customers. If it's online, it's easy to give them time well saved. But but how do you serve both of those and and recognize that that because people want goods and services to be commoditized, then it gives them the ability to spend their hard earned money and their hard earned time on the experiences that they value. There's three things today that I learned from talking to Joe Pine. In this world where too much and too many products, services, and even resumes are chasing too little demand, you have to find a way to differentiate what you offer. You have to shift the focus from what you do to why you matter. And why you matter is to create smiles and memories, to connect people, to fire their senses, 
to get them to share what they did, courtesy of the stage that you put on. Second, put a monetary value to the time the customer spends with you. Ask yourself, how can you give them a bigger bang for their buck? And in doing so, how can you even charge more or sell more? And finally, memorize those four E's, education, escape, entertainment, and aesthetics, and build them into every experience. Joe Pine, thank you for joining me on Chatter That Matters. Thank you very much, Tony. I appreciate the opportunity to, to talk about all of this with you and, and understand that, that you, you've read our book multiple times, continue to get things out of it every time. If you're a fan of this radio show and Chatter That Matters podcast, you know that I often bring in someone from RBC to put what we're talking about in context in terms of how does a business apply things, like as Joe talked about earlier, the whole concept of the experience economy. So at RBC, there's somebody I've worked with a couple of times in my past. Her name's Aline Vanderhoop. She's the senior manager of Avion Cards for RBC. And why I wanted to reach out to her is they've just launched this whole new program that's really about creating experiences as they deem it that money can't buy. Aileen, welcome to A Chatter That Matters. Hi, Tony. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. One of the things I'm quite excited about is this Avion Collection which is sort of this virtual money can't buy. Tell me a little bit about what you're doing and why do you think that's going to sort of raise the game and this whole sense of, you know, use a card, collect points and get something that really makes your heart beat. Absolutely. I'm so excited that you've asked this question, Tony. And the Avion Collection is a really interesting, innovative and reimagined platform. So if we think about the competitive climate that we're in right now, so um, there's no shortage of competitive threat. I mean, within the financial in, uh, industry, there's tons of innovation. Um, but Avion specifically has been hit hard in the last 12 months being a travel card, but we can't actually provide traditional value to clients in the way that they typically are used to, um, kind of being grounded and not being able to travel. And so within uh, the parameters that we've been kind of forced into, we have um, delivered new and different value to clients through the Avion collection. And at its core, it's an always-on platform uh, for client engagement with long-term potential to position this as an acquisition driver for the bank. It's a highly coveted reason to believe in the Avion brand. Um, and it comes to life through curated travel inspiration, exclusive value, and unique experiences, allowing our clients no shortage of opportunities to use and earn rewards along the way. And, and so it's um, a reimagination of value at its core. And deli- like delivering and doubling down on what we know our clients love the most about our brand. So, Eileen, you've been involved with the Olympics. You're now involved, very involved with the experience side of the Avion card. What's your feeling as we return to normality? As we as we start, you know, this herd immunity, we, we're allowed to go back out and have fun again. Do you think that experiences are going to absolutely roar back? There's going to be pent up demand, or do you think people have moved on and? realize that there's other things they want to do with their life. Yeah, there is no question in my mind, Tony, that this is going to come back with with some type of ferocity. People are desperate to to experience things in a different way. And uh, if we think about products and, and experiences, those two things kind of in my mind go hand in hand. I mean, especially in the last year um, where people were buying products to kind of create experiences at home. If we think about subscription services and ordering in becoming the new date night, we think about kind of home improvement um, becoming the new vacation time and, and backyard oasis. So people have been forced to kind of think differently about what an experience means while we're waiting for the world to, to open up again. So I think there's definitely some pent up demand. I mean, Dave Mackay often talks about the frustrated savings that we've observed through the pandemic. 
And so there's going to be no shortage of demand when the world reopens. So while experiences have always been important and valued pre-pandemic, there's going to be even more appreciation now, uh, given experiences um, that clients may have missed in the last 12 months or perhaps feel that they have taken for granted. So what's the first thing you're going to do with that pent up money you say? <laughs> I can't wait to get out and uh, see my friends, uh, enjoy a patio summer night downtown Toronto, um, as well as kind of go back to the music scene. I mean, I think we're all desperate to go back and and enjoy it, just being outside and, and, and listening to, to the bands we've all missed. Aline Vanderhoop, who's been involved with experiences in so many different aspects of RBC. Thank you for uh, sharing your thoughts with me on Chatter That Matters. Thank you so much, Tody. I would just say with uh, the return of the experience economy, um, I'm going to shamelessly encourage all listeners to keep their ear to the ground as there's going to be no shortage of exciting opportunities, both within the Avion collection, as well as more broadly through the RBC uh, sponsorship properties. So, so get excited. So let me simply summarize it by saying increasingly, what will make us happy is spending our time and our money satisfying the desire for authenticity. Thank you. I'm Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon. Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. 